This is the morning brief from the Economic Times. The stock market regulator is seeking transparency in valuation of startups. Earlier this month, it reached out to several top venture capitalists, private equity funds to share details on valuation methods, the credentials of the valuer, disclosure standards, and potential conflicts of interest. A move that has raised eyebrows and hackles across the investing community. Well, it takes me back 15 years ago when a lot of changes happened in the mutual fund industry. And at that point, uh, there was a lot of hue and cry that SEBI was micromanaging. It would uh, stifle the mutual fund industry. But we all know it didn't happen. A lot of money is going into the alternative funds, that is the private equity, the venture capital funds, because you have this wealthy set of investors who feel that the stock market is overvalued. So why not look for the multi-bagger in unlisted stocks, in the hidden stories, which the private equity or the venture capital managers are in better place to spot than them. So they are putting money. So if you compare the two cumulative investments between June 2021 and 22, it's up by around 80, 80 to 90,000 crore. So it's a growing industry. It's an evolving industry. So regulator doesn't want to take its eyes off this sector. And to be fair to SEBI, SEBI at the moment is only collecting information. Mm-hmm. It has not taken any harsh steps or clamp down on any fund. It is just collecting information, possibly to understand whether the rules of the game are right. That's my senior colleague, Shugato Ghosh, who keeps a close tab on such key regulatory issues involving the financial markets. But before we get down to the why nows and what next, it's important to set the context here. Now, we all know Success has many fathers. The unicorn ecosystem saw a lot of new entries. Byju's is not just India's most valuable startup, but also the world's most valued edtech startup. And the healthy run for Indian startups continues. Tata 1MG now the 22nd unicorn in the year 2022, which takes the total number of startups in India over 107. As we became the third largest ecosystem for new age tech startups globally, some of the big disruptors went from big to bigger. Some even tapped the Indian capital markets with mega IPOs. Paytm listing on the Lal Street opening at a share price of 1,955 rupees to a share versus the offer price of 2,150 per share. Food tech major Zomato has today delivered a piping hot listing making its the Lal Street debut at 116 rupees a share. That's a 53% premium over the issue price. The stellar listing has helped the company enter the coveted club of companies that have a market cap of over 1 lakh crore rupees. Nike had a blockbuster debut today with its market cap crossing 1 lakh crore rupees. The stock listing at a premium of 82% as compared to the issue price of 1,125 rupees. Remember I quoted a famous saying about success? Well, I didn't complete the sentence there. 
Success surely has many fathers, but failure, none. So when tech stocks started melting, hell did freeze over for many of the freshly minted public stock of the startup fraternity in India. Bloodbath in the listed space also implied private valuations plummeting and an unprecedented funding squeeze. So Zomato reported its Q1 FI22 numbers. The losses of the company this time have widened both on a quarter-on-quarter -quarter basis as well as on a year-on-year -year basis. Nika, its parent company, came out with its earnings over the weekend and what we have seen is a big decline in the net profit. Now the startup universe has seen heightened deal activity and maximum transactions over the last few years. But now the tide is turning and a downward cycle has actually begun. Liquidity constraint was and is the biggest factor for the rise and fall of the new age companies. Now anticipation of a funding winter is what startup is staring at and the cracks are already visible on the ground. It's Friday, 16th of September. From the Economic Times, I'm your host, Orijit Barman. You're listening to Sebi's Brush with Upstart Valuations. This is the Morning Brief. But why the heightened scrutiny all of a sudden? Well, I would say a combination of factors. Yes, the dismal performance on listing is certainly one of the things which SEBI can't ignore. The another thing, as you said, the size of the AIF industry has grown. And thirdly, you have a new SEBI chief who was earlier as whole-time member looking after private equity and venture capital funds. Now, SEBI has no jurisdiction over unlisted companies. Technically, SEBI cannot say what should be the valuation of an unlisted company. But SEBI regulates the AIEFs and investors are putting a lot of money into AIEFs. Now, if these investors tomorrow just wake up and say that, look, we were all taken up the garden path. We were not given the right deal. And as regulators, what were you doing? Now, they may not be as many as mutual fund investors. They may be larger investors, bigger investors, putting in 50 lakh, one crore. But still, you can't ignore. Correct if they're given a raw deal. So both the fund managers are learning. The IPO meltdown, as you said, was a learning experience. The reluctance of auditors to sign any balance sheet is another telling story. Mm. So just like the fund managers, the investors too are learning and it's an evolving story. Most of the AIFs are close-ended funds where the NAV is published every six months. In certain cases, if the investors give their consent, the NAV can be published once a year. So a lot of things depend on the fund house, the fund manager, the administrator, what are they doing? So there is a lot of element of trust and SEBI as regulator may want to see whether the trust is being breached in any way. SEBI may well be trying to raise the disclosure bar to minimize risks for investors, but the world of venture capital thrives on taking punts. As they say, you spray and then pray that out of the 10 wagers you make, one or at best two will rake in all the moolah. The remaining eight will fail. So venture investing ain't for the faint-hearted in the first place. Questioning that very essence might just turn out to be counterproductive. 
True, true. But then that is an exact comparison of how the market exists in the West. Mm. That may not be a fair comparison because our mutual fund industry itself has really taken off in the last 15-20 years, right? Correct. Before 20 years, how many people invested in SIPs and other things? So compared to that, AIF is still a fledgling industry, even though it has grown fast and it is still growing. So it is good to check whether the rules are right, whether we have the right rules. Right. So this kind of actions, this kind of data collection would possibly kind of lend themselves to certain criticism of micromanagement. Mm. But then we are in a position to criticize SEBI only if it acts, only if it comes out with uh, regulations which are too stifling. So, so far it hasn't happened. Correct. So it's a wait and watch. But why this obsession also about the origin of the AIS? Who controls the AIF? It's almost like you're trying to lift some kind of a corporate veil. Is there something that we are missing here that SEBI is trying to actually uh, address? So look, private equity at one point was largely foreign private equity, right? Mm -hmm. To help the growth of the local private equity, private venture capital, the AIF regime came about. That was 2012 when the regulations came. Now, AIF regime is a allows formation of private equity venture capital funds in India, where that fund will have a manager, will have a sponsor who has to give in five crore, and the trustee. In fact, 99% of the money can come from foreign investors. There is no rule that stops a local private equity guy from doing it. Mm -hmm. But when a private equity investment happens, that is a local AIF, invests money downstream, mm -hmm. buys equity of an Indian company, mm -hmm. it is considered as a local investment. Right. It is not considered as an FDI. But to make that happen, SEBI wants that the manager has to be a Desi manager. Mm -hmm. In the sense, Desi control, that is locally controlled. So manager is not an individual, manager is an LLP or a firm. Right. Now, so now, say 60% or 51% of that firm, if it is controlled by NRIs or by foreigners, in that case, SEBI can say, look, guys, you are kind of sidestepping the regulations. You are bypassing the regulations because the manager is foreign. Because if AIFs have to be FDI compliant, then they will have to look at all, they have to fulfill all FDI rules. So there are a lot of do's and don'ts of FDI. So AIFs mm -hmm. are spared from that on the condition that your manager has to be locally controlled your sponsor has to be a local business. And if you have not done that, either the fund was ill-advised or it was like a, it was like a bit of a cavalier attitude towards investment because SEBI wasn't too focused on this part of the market. And uh, there are funds who have gone about doing it where mm. a large banking group could be the sponsor or the manager, which has set up a local AIF here. Mm. But it did not quite ensure that it was its investments, its downstream investments, were FDI compliant. Mm. Now, today, if SEBI finds out that FDI norms were breached in some of these investments, it boils down to a violation of FDI regulations and FEMA. But what is surprising is that these are questions which normally RBI asks, which is not typically SEBI's domain, but SEBI has just asked them to disclose. Valuations go up and valuations come down. Sometimes it's greed that drives it. Sometimes arrogance gets added to the mix. Often, it's just external macroeconomic headwinds. Wars, energy shocks, inflation that become an avalanche. 
We have seen this movie play out several times over. From the tech boom to bust of the early 2000s, to the global financial crisis of 2008, to the more recent ILNFS blowout. But what are the key triggers for the meltdown of the tech stocks around the world this time around? I asked a former Lehman Brothers investment banker turned fintech entrepreneur Tushar Agarwal this question. Tushar runs Stashfin, a neobank as its founder and CEO that has raised its last round of capital just this June. I think mm-hmm. all four of them, at least from my vantage point, different. The first one is probably driven a lot by hubris. Second one uh, driven by somewhat by Wall Street, less by Main Street. ILFS one, I think, was very local to India, maybe not, didn't have any global surround pinnings in it. And I think Correct. what we're seeing now is sort of a combination of all three. Some hubris, some sort of global kind of uh, trends playing out, especially in the commodities and interest rate cycles, and the currency sort of depreciating as well. Okay, I'll come back to you to find out what's different this time around. But Pratibha, over the years, you've seen AIFs grow and become a very big, it's no longer a fledgling setup in India. It is a fast-growing space. How has the evolution been so far? You know, I've literally seen the AIF market evolve in India from the initial regulations in 2012, I think, to, you know, where we are now. It's been a decade, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, was uh, luckily part of both the drafting, the evolution of the regulations. Mm -hmm. Initially, the way it was set up, we had to even explain to the government what a trust is, you Mm -hmm. know, to, to enable them to allow trust. It was set up as, because India didn't have a funds industry and you had um, Singapore and Mauritius funds being set up uh, instead of having them onshore. So you're losing out on jobs, capital, tax. Thankfully, the government took cognizance of it and their regulations came in place. That's Pratibha Jain, co-head Regulatory Affairs Committee at Indian Venture Capital Association, IVCA, the most influential industry body for private equity and venture capital players that operate in the country. Pratibha is also the head of strategy at Everstone Group, a Singapore-headquartered PE firm with a large India portfolio. Now you have private equity and infrastructure and you know, all alternative classes being registered here. And what really drove that industry to grow was that they were very light-touch regulation. Mm -hmm. And recognizing you need that kind of flexibility because funds are very bespoke structures. The rights you negotiate between your investors and with the investing companies, in our case, for our topic, startups, are going to vary significantly depending on the deal, depending on its size, depending on the the stage uh, the company is in and the size of your fund and your investor. Now, Mm. as anything evolves, the regulations have gone through a lot of changes. And, you know, just in the recent few years, there's been spate of uh, new compliances that have been put in place and also easing of some of the provisions, mainly because earlier it was seen as a big boy play. Mm. Now we are seeing more and more retail products being introduced and don't get me wrong, you know, this will never get as listed markets or even mutual funds, like minimum ticket sizes 1 CR. 
so you're still talking a big boy play but compared yeah. to just institutions coming in now hnis have started investing in ais for investing in startups you know the standard legal idiom of caveat emptor which is buyers beware should totally apply mm. you know they Correct. should have knowledge of what they're getting into so that's that's where the noise is coming from because you're seeing more hnis investing and is that the reason why suddenly we see or it seems that there is a heightened scrutiny because they mm-hmm. are an influential lot they're smaller in numbers but far more influential than retail investors no you are absolutely right right influential is the right word uh, the reason they are high net worth individuals is they make their mark in society i've worked half my life in other financial centers like new york tokyo hong kong before coming back to india mm. and i've these cycles play out in those markets also where valuations are going to go up and valuations are going to come down depending on how much capital is chasing what deals mm. right that that's a normal cycle in india the creation of unicorns like tushars nbfc is a relatively new phenomena Mm. and it has attracted relatively for the first time these investors who have not gone through the cycle and remember part of it is it's not just the valuation there's always the valuation game and tushar can explain to you but yeah. from a lawyer's perspective from what we are seeing this was as much a governance issue at the mm-hmm. startup as a valuation issue what mm-hmm. started bursting of the bubbles was really all that money got raised but there was not enough time or enough focus on the governance which started bursting the bubble look my, my take on this is a little bit like i would say a little bit more different i think i would say one of those is obviously what you characterize which is that you know people who are wealthy they want to have a seat on the table they want to have a point of view and they want to be heard and therefore there is a debate going on but also i feel partly uh, macroeconomically india is also moving away from being a goat uh, versus uh, being a tiger earlier we were okay with sort of things happening globally you just kind of accepted like a meek kind of animal goat maybe not the right example uh, but mm-hmm. now people want to hear their view people want to share the view and i think india is different india the the challenges the opportunities have a different so i partly also feel the confidence the industry or the the stakeholders have perhaps savvy or other people where they're saying look you know it may be okay that you have these no question asked policy in other markets but by the way we are different and mm. there's a very good reason why we're different because the opportunities that we have are very very different the risks are very different the people who can get hurt the people who can make a lot of money are very different i'm actually very excited about why this debate is happening because it shows to me at least the level of confidence our regulators our stakeholders are having in our maturing ecosystem true so you know tushar and i know tushar well is kind of new to the regulatory regime Our regulators have always been tigers. We've yeah. never had a dearth of strong regulators, whether it's RBI or SEBI. All they said we are different from the rest of the world. They've never shied away from. In fact, you know, we have regulations. We had regulations in place for products where nowhere else they existed, and people started borrowing it, you know, from the Indian markets. So I don't think it was for a lack of confidence among the regulators in in the case of AIFs it's just deepening of the the market of investors that we are looking at what are those gaps that need to be plugged in you feel tushar there are so many boom bust stories so i think people will be very curious to know what really is going on and tushar I, 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 that right like 
um, think of think of, think of yourself in Silicon Valley, right? It's not that you know companies there haven't failed. If you compare India to the Silicon Valley, and if we started regulating valuations in the US, would they have been able to grow the market the way they have? Well, absolutely not. I and mean, look, like I said, I'm not suggesting that there should be more regulation or less regulation. What I'm saying is that I can see the reason why people are very curious and they should be, they're digging around a little bit more. Yeah, so, I mean, look, I mean, I think, as, as Ajit, you pointed out early in the, in the discussion, there is um, a lot happening globally. Some people are getting hurt. They've lost some money. Some people have made some money, maybe not a lot compared to what they had in mind. I think in general, uh, disclosures around investing in riskier businesses is lesser than I would like to see. For example, when I was an investment banker, at Goldman Sachs and Lehman Brothers, I remember even back in the day, there was very, very clear sort of guidelines on who you would pitch a deal to if you were pitching a deal to. The standard, I would think, was generally a little higher. And it wasn't so much what the regulation said, but I think the, the ecosystem was much more mature. You weren't sort of pitching it to people who are pensioners. You weren't pitching early stage businesses to people who needed the money. I personally feel that that is not the case over here. I'm an angel investor, and I don't think in the debates when we have with uh, the groups I work with, and there's some very talented people, by the way, in that group, there there is enough sort of debate on the risks involved, that people can lose money. Usually the conversation is very nice. Entrepreneurs are happy, the investors are happy, the bankers are happy. People are generally very happy. That's good. But I don't think it's been discussed enough that, look, guys, you know, this could be worth zero in a couple of months or years. I think that would be one area where I feel like, you know, maybe there could be something more discussion around the topic. And I don't mean legally or sort of something is missing in the law, just having a more frank and honest chat on those topics. So everybody wants to come into the party, but nobody wants to talk about the hangover. Uh, <laughs> but Pratibha, you, you think that we already are overregulated and we are treading on very, very thin ice. I, I won't say we are overregulated. I think we are well-regulated um, with the AF regulations. You haven't seen, you know, significant issues coming out of the industry. So I don't mind, you know, having more disclosure around how valuation has been done, for example. Who are you using for valuation? Are there any conflicts? That kind of disclosure. I think disclosure-based regimes are very good, right? Maybe you raise the ticket size, but if we end up creating limitations on valuations, you know, there are certain markets like the bond markets yeah. never recovered from, you know, the initial set of regulations that didn't work. And now been trying now for at least a decade, I can remember, to find solutions and we've just not found it. What SEVI ends up doing because of these limitations and taking preemptive moves really ends up restricting the market from growth. Let's address the nub of the issue here, which is how do you value new age internet and tech companies? Most of them do not have a track record of profits. They're still at their growth phase, so are still burning cash to gain market and wallet share. Since they do not have much of a history, valuation of startups has to inevitably rely on what these companies could become tomorrow or day after or five years down the line and not necessarily on what they are today. And since they operate in relatively uncharted terrain, they face a unique set of risks that could alter the very nature of their business as well as existence. Yeah, look, I mean, there are broadly two uh, broad methodologies people use. One is what we call 
comparable company analysis, which is that mm-hmm. if you think that a pile of apples in one cart is worth X rupees, the pile of apples in another cart will be worth something similar. That's sort of mm-hmm. one way, and that's fortunately, fortunately, the global way of how the quick and dirty math kind of works. The yeah. second is sort of more fundamental, where you kind of say something like, okay, look, let me go top down or bottoms up. Top down means you start with the industry, how many people live in a country, et cetera, et cetera, the target right. market. And bottoms up is a little bit more, sort of more granular. And you say, okay, this is what the business can be with some assumptions over a period of time, which is likely, usually we call fundamental analysis. And then you kind of take a view what the things will be in the future and you kind of discount it back to the present value. And right. there are, different techniques like a DCF, et cetera, around it to get to that point of view. Mm-hmm. I think early stage business investing isn't any different. These two methodologies which typically drive values. And then the third element, which Prithiba alluded to earlier, was supply and demand. So sometimes all this goes for a toss because there's just so much supply and there's very little demand. Therefore, things will just go up in price, which is a market sort of forces determining value. But these right. three areas that would be, I would characterize would represent maybe 90% of how businesses get value. So you're saying that you rely on benchmarks that are already there, which are applied on mature companies, things like future cash flows, price to book, gross written premiums when it comes to fintech companies, which are into uh, insurance, etc., as the base. And then on top of that, you add a stack of optionalities, you know, uh, as the X factor, gross margins, et cetera, and then you arrive at multiples. Absolutely, right. So the multiples could be derived in the in the case which example which you mentioned, which is that you take something and you put some bells and whistles to it, you figure out what's going to be worth in a couple of years, and then you kind of discount it back, divided by the price mm-hmm. that you're paying, and you derive the multiple. Or you kind of say, well, look, this kind of business, which looks very similar to mine, has these kind of multiples on revenue, gross margin, and free cash flow, number of customers, other metrics like earnings. And you say, okay, let me apply these multiples to another business I'm looking at. So one way can be more fundamental, where you derive the multiple based on some assumptions. And the second way is sort of more comparable to other companies. But would you agree that it's that much more difficult to actually do that looking or valuing early stage companies because you're valuing them for who they will become or potentially become tomorrow, day after, or seven years down the line and not for who they are today? So basically, it's a punt on future and there are therefore that much more imponderables. Absolutely. Look, and you know, like I say, sometimes... We will, most people would not be able to predict with a very high degree of certainty what they'll have for lunch tomorrow, let alone project predicting what the weather will be five years from now. I think you said it, it's a punt on what will be in the future and you're sort of making educated punts or guesses on how that will be arrived. I think the one piece which is on the balance people get wrong is that most people probably underestimate what they will do in 10 years, but they overestimate what they'll do in one year. So sometimes in a linear thinking approach in Excel, it's not very easy to kind of come out what the business or a set of entrepreneurs can do you know, in a decade or so. But as you said, it's very hard. It's very hard to do so with a very high degree of accuracy. It's not so much the valuation, you know, which is causing this debate or the scrutiny. It is the FOMO among fund managers and, you know, the speed at which they thought were deploying capital and somewhere along the way, they just forgot to do the basic checks and balances. And mm-hmm. now that, you know, the tables have turned, you know, the party has come to an abrupt halt. There are skeletons that are coming out to tumbling out of the closet, so to speak. 
Yeah, I mean, I agree that it's a combination, definitely, of a few factors, right? Mm-hmm. One is, of course, the hotness of the market. When the market has all heated up and there's, a, especially post-COVID, there was a lot of money to be deployed. And even during, actually during COVID, we'd mm-hmm. seen, you know, liquidity in the market that we hadn't seen for a while. And then there is a pressure to deploy that liquidity, right? So, you know, that's a very important factor that, that we can't take out of the equation and that you can't regulate for. You know, you can't create a funnel for, okay, this only this much liquidity will come. was very happy for that for liquidity to come into the Indian markets and create all these unicorns and create these jobs. You know, then question becomes, what do you do from here? Because the big worry, which is very legitimate, is it might be a big boy to big boy play. Sophisticated investors are investing, people who are taking money are experienced, have set up good businesses. So why can't we just let them play the game? I guess the the important question becomes, and what people are worried about, are job losses. The unicorns have created extraordinary amount of jobs in the Indian market. And rightfully, the government and the regulator would want to ensure that there is not an upheaval there. Mm -hmm. But I don't think regulating valuations at this stage is going to help that cause. I think what will help there is the focus on governance, which is now happening. Again, you go back to an important piece missing in the markets, which is the credit market. You know, you're completely then reliant on foreign funding because you just can't get bank loans. There's just no methods available locally. So I think combination of liquidity and governance can see us through this turbulent time. Some will die. That's markets. That's, that's, yeah, that's markets, yeah. Tushar, uh, you've raised funds recently. The meltdown of tech stock had already happened and it was progressively from becoming bad to worse to a full bloodbath. How did that impact your capital raising initiatives? Yeah, so look, so certainly the macro environment played a part in how the round got priced and also hmm. what the size of the round was. But look, I want to just go back to one point which you brought up earlier. I think the discussion is a lot about sort of the investors, but I also feel, you know, you can't keep the entrepreneurs out of the equation. The value True. or it's it's an ecosystem. And yeah. the one piece which is a little technical, but I think your ET audience will really appreciate this and they probably already know this, is that a lot of the investors when they come in, they also have certain preferred rights. What that means is that if you value a business high, very high enough, let's say, and if it's not as high as it should be, the next round of fundraising, the investor typically gains or does not lose money, but the entrepreneur does. That's on balance, I'm oversimplifying uh, mm-hmm. something called anti-dilution. And Pratibha can probably be much more eloquent than I am in this topic. So I think, look, uh, a lot of times when you are when we, and I was raising money, you know, you would say no to capital, which is perhaps just coming at a higher price because you do know that you know, you have to justify the price, maybe the next round of fundraising or the product business certain way. And mm. the macro environment had sort of two parts to play in our race. One of them is our own sort of, I would characterize fear or lack of certainty. Because uh, when the world is sort of melting around, you're also thinking, well, is that going to happen in India? Should we sort of worry about tempting our growth projections? Uh, can yeah. we hire the talent we think we will be hiring? So therefore, there's an element of internal circumcision about what we're going to be doing or not and how well we can perform. And the second part, as I said, is, you know, some sort of some kind of uh, expectation setting with the investors as well. Sebi is also asking for details like qualification of the valuer, whether the valuer hired 
is an associate of the fund or its manager or a sponsor. And if there was a significant change in the valuation matrix or the methodology in the past three years, among other things, that's micromanagement, isn't it? I am okay with asking for details of the valuer. That's disclosure to me. You need to be very careful when you start going into valuation methodologies and any Mm. changes that the valuer has undertaken. Because as Sushar was mentioning, if you if you hear him, it's an art. It's not a science. Yeah, yeah. So the way I am valuing today would be based on the assumptions and the facts that are present, you know, pre-investing versus you know three years after investing mm-hmm. for the second round is going to be totally different. Any factual disclosure on you know the value is not an associate with the fund manager. Mm-hmm. I'm okay with, right? That shouldn't be the case. There should be no such conflicts. And having said that, overall approach for me, for this category, for the fund fund management industry in India, which is competing with the global industry, right, for capital, should be light touch. It is right. light touch globally. I think it's very important we, we balance the need for regulations versus the need for this capital for the growth of the startups and the economy. My take. SEBI's scrutiny of practices involved in arriving at startup valuations may lead to consistency. It's a fact that fund managers suffering from FOMO have been lax and many looked the other way as long as the gravy train continued running. Just two examples to highlight what I'm saying. Most VCs in private conversations will tell you about a leading edtech company that didn't allow any independent due diligence to any investor and gave out only sketchy financial details at best. Nobody cared for all this while. Nobody balked as valuations vaulted. Today, the same edtech company's losses have surged 17 times. Another hotshot health tech saw its valuation soar 400% within seven months, and it raised $700 million across two funding rounds between April and October of last year. Today, the same company's valuation is down by half. The list is long. As one governance lapse follows another audit delay, while another founder loses his mind and gets shunted out of his company, regulatory efforts to bring in some consistency should be a welcome move. But as we discussed, it may be harder to come by for startups than for companies in established businesses where the path to profitability is better defined. So SEBI, has to be judicious and avoid silly regulations. Else it will choke the golden goose once and for all and kill the spirit of entrepreneurship and hamper India's image as a sought-after investment destination for startup capital. And as for startup IPOs and the lessons learned from the recent post-listing carnage, I want to leave you with just one thought. For companies that want to go public but do not have a proven track record of profits for, say, three to four years, how about allowing them 
to only raise new money to fund growth. Disallow promoters, founders, existing shareholders from selling shares in the secondary market. Once post-listing, the price stabilizes, the lock-ins expire, allow them to sell as well, but not before. You have been listening to Sebi's Brush with Upstart Valuations with me, your host, Orijit Barman. This episode was produced by Vinay Joshi, sound editor, Rajas Nayak, executive producers, Anupriya Bahadur and yours truly. Do like and share the episode on your social media handles and spread the word. The Morning Brief drops every Tuesday, Thursdays and Friday. You can listen to us on Spotify, Amazon Prime Music, Apple Podcasts and GeoSavan as well as the economictimes.com slash podcast and by tuning into etplay.com, our latest offering. All external sound clips used in this episode belong to their respective owners. Credits are mentioned in the description. Have a great weekend. Goodbye and good luck.